0: Our elections have been hacked, our power plants, our nuclear plants, our hospitals. And so where is ransomware going? Because we're just digitizing our lives. At what point is it going to be your self-driving car or (laughs) your insulin pump or your pacemaker? And that's a very real possibility. That's not just stoking fear for fear's sake. That's a possibility.
1: Hi, I'm Taylor Owen, and this is Big Tech. Last week, Google discovered a group of hackers had been breaking into some of the most widely used tech in the world. iPhones, Androids, and computers running Windows. Like with many security breaches, Google shut it down. But there was a problem. The hacking was actually part of a counter-terrorism mission conducted by Western governments. Now, unless you're intimately familiar with the world of cybersecurity, this might have you scratching your head. Why are Western governments hacking iPhones? And how does Google have the power to shut down counterterrorism operations? But this story actually gets at a core tension in cybersecurity. Government agencies like the NSA will pay millions of dollars to hackers who find bugs in hardware and software. But they don't buy these bugs, which are called zero days, so that they can fix them. They buy them so that they can spy on terrorists or drug smugglers or child pornographers. But here's the catch. Almost everyone on the planet uses the same suite of technologies. So that iPhone bug that allows the NSA to snoop on terrorists can also be used by Saudi Arabia to threaten its dissidents, or by China to spy on the Uyghurs. And those zero days can be used against us, too. If the NSA leaves a bug in windows, our adversaries could find it and exploit it as well, which could mean access to our banks, our industrial secrets, or even our nuclear power plants. In other words, in the world of cyber warfare, an offensive advantage is also a glaring defensive vulnerability. This is the world that Nicole Perlroth has been immersed in for nearly a decade. Nicole is a cybersecurity reporter for the New York Times and the author of a fascinating new book called This Is How They Tell Me The World Ends. A lot of the conversations I have on this podcast are scary in a big picture, existential way. But this conversation is scary in a far more visceral, immediate way. Because as we move closer and closer to a world where everything is online, Nicole makes it pretty clear that we haven't done nearly enough to protect ourselves. the the one thing i kept thinking reading this book and being peripherally aware of a lot of the issues and topics you're talking about was just how crazy it must have been being that close to it all i mean i look at it as a from a fair amount of distance as an academic and there's that scene in the at the end where you're talking i think to the moscow bureau chief and he kind of says were you scared and yeah. I was kind of thinking that the whole book and you address it at the end, but I'm, I'm just wondering what it was like yeah. being in the middle of that for seven or eight years of your life and still are.
0: It's just been 10 years of running around with my head cut off from one attack to the next. Usually they're not that similar. You're sort of just jumping back and forth and each new attack, you have to learn a whole new field and a whole new terminology And then something crazy happens over here and you have to run back and and handle that. And so I didn't get a lot of time to process what the hell just happened until I sat down to write this book. And what had just happened was... Just this convergence of all kinds of attacks by nation states, by cyber criminals, by some kind of convergence of the two in a lot of cases Mm. on American companies, on our intellectual property, on our government agencies, on our elections, on our psyche. Um, And it's just become such a mess. And I feel so dizzy.
1: I can only imagine.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> and I wonder if you do you think you were able to see those connections and draw those connections and tell this story as you did because you were kind of an outsider to that world and didn't come from a cybersecurity background and aren't a white male in your 20s living in Silicon Valley? Or I mean, in many ways, you yeah. were an outsider to a lot of the communities you were talking to, right?
0: Yes. And I, yes, I do think it helped to be an outsider. It also is very difficult to not be an outsider. You know, I constantly have this heartburn because I write for a lay audience. The translation is always hard, and I always hear about it from the technical community that I didn't describe things with utmost um, technical detail. That said, I got into business journalism in particular because I took a class in journalism school. Actually, I took a class at Stanford business school that was about bioethics. And I just remember this guy came in and he talked about, they were testing a new birth control and he had to decide what they would do in cases where the birth control didn't work. Would they pay for the abortion would they pay for that kid? If the mother wanted to have the kid, would they pay for their schooling or their college education? You know, there were just these fascinating ethical decisions at play. And I remember thinking, huh, that could be a really cool niche to go cover business, but really be keeping an eye on sort of the moral hazards and these ethical decisions that business leaders have to make all the time. So that's why I got into business journalism in the first place. And What I saw in cybersecurity wasn't just that the problem was getting a lot worse and that the attacks were happening with more frequency and that businesses were suddenly being expected to defend themselves from nation states. I saw that here in the United States, all of our incentive structures and models were leading us down this path of further vulnerability. You know, here in Silicon Valley, we had all bought into this promise. Of these from these companies of a frictionless society where we could order up an Uber, order our groceries, you know, get restaurant delivery through our phones. And businesses, you know, their incentive was just to get things to market in the most efficient, Mm -hmm. low-cost way possible. And, And it wasn't necessarily to test all that code and lock it up before they rolled it out and all that code wasn't just getting into our phones and our computers, it was getting into the grid and our airplanes and air traffic control. And then government was, you know, government's supposed to keep us safe, but I was fascinated by these murmurings. I was hearing of this underground market for vulnerabilities where we would actually pay hackers with taxpayer dollars to hand over holes in this software not so we could fix them, yeah. but so we could exploit them for espionage and for battlefield preparations. So all of these incentives were leading us down this dangerous path. And the thing I always just found fascinating was this moral hazard, particularly at the mm-hmm. government level, of you know, when do we decide uh, to leave Americans more vulnerable to preserve our espionage advantages and mm-hmm. our battlefield advantages? And at what point are we going to decide, wait a minute, we are the most targeted nation on earth. We mm-hmm. need to recalibrate and focus on defense. So a lot of these issues begged for more transparency and broader discussions. And I don't think that these communities were really solving for them on their own. And certainly weren't speaking to
1: a wider public, right? I mean, they. The, it struck me all the way through that at the same time as you're writing front page stories for the New York Times, I don't feel that that this discussion really broke through to the zeitgeist about how we understood yes. tech and the state. And it was that part of the motivation for writing this for a broad public audience?
0: Yes. I mean, I could barely keep track and I was covering these and I had a front row seat to a lot of these attacks. So I knew even though you know, the New York Times was putting these on the front page. They were mm. putting them in the Sunday paper, but on their own, they weren't landing with people. And mm. I felt immense frustration with that because I was the one translating this and putting it in the paper. And so I knew it was going to have to take a narrative uh, to get this into, you know, a story, real storytelling. Yeah, um, To tie this together and to make it accessible. And so that's why I did the book.
1: All right. So I have a few broad questions about the implications of all this. But first, I was just hoping we could reset a little bit and talk, maybe just talk mm-hmm. through what the core. narrative is here that you're laying out. Mm -hmm. So um, the whole book revolves around um, zero days or vulnerabilities um, in our tech infrastructure. Can you just explain quickly what those are?
0: Um, Yes. And I apologize to listeners. I promise that this is the most technical part of the conversation in the book, but it is important to know what a zero day is because so much of the narrative is based on it. So a zero day is just a hole in a hardware or software that the software manufacturer, or hardware manufacturer doesn't know about. So let's just take the easiest example. I find a flaw in your iOS, iPhone mobile software. iHacker can uh, develop the code to exploit it. And that zero day exploit uh, becomes, you know, allows me to get into your phone remotely. It could let me read your text messages. It could let me turn on your microphone without you knowing about it or your camera, track your location. And so it has immense value for cyber criminals, but also for nation states who want to spy on terrorists or law enforcement agencies who want to get into a criminal or a drug cartel or a child predator's phone. Um, And so there's, there's this market that has popped up around zero days Governments buy zero day exploits from hackers or brokers. The going rate for a uh, remote zero day exploit that can get me into your iPhone is $2.5 million in the US. Hmm. And it's even higher uh, if you want to sell that code to a broker in the Middle East. The Saudi Arabia or the United Arab Emirates will pay $3 million. That's the going rate there. Um, And these prices just keep going up, up, up.
1: But that market, it emerged over time. (laughs) And the hackers in this world had seemed to have a pretty complicated relationship, both with tech companies and with governments. Um, Can you sort of lay out that landscape of how that emerged and where this hacking community fits within all those actors who might want to buy these?
0: Yes. So I started out the book um, talking about a dinner I went to with these, uh, two Italians, very colorful guys who had started this startup called Revolm, which was actually developing zero day exploits, not for your iPhone or Android phone, but for critical infrastructure for industrial systems, you know, they were selling the ability to break into a factory floor or a power plan or the grid And I asked them at that dinner, who will you not sell these to Iran, China, Russia? And they wouldn't answer my question. And I also knew that they could not answer my question because so many of these deals around zero day sales are wrapped in non-disclosure agreements. And a lot of cases, the clients are governments that roll them into these classified programs. And the reason that everyone is so secretive about this is not just because of how these tools get used, but what the, what the tool is. And the tool is essentially an invisible way to spy on or break into systems. Mm. So the minute that Apple learns about that zero day in your phone in their iOS software, they will patch it. They will release a software update. You will get an annoying prompt on your phone and you'll have to click it. And then you're fixed. Um, so they don't want to tell anyone about their zero day exploits, uh, or how they're using them because the minute they do that $3 million investment, they just made turns to, to mud. Hmm. So I knew that there was a market for this. I knew that there was the market was basically trading in our vulnerabilities. I knew that these vulnerabilities were showing up in the attacks I was covering for the New York times all day. And I knew that no one wanted to talk about the market. And so I basically went and interviewed anyone who would talk to me mm. <laughs> about this market. And what I learned was um, that there is a long, complicated, bitter history here in the early 90s and um You know, hackers would find these holes and there was no 1-800 number for them to call at Microsoft or Sun Microsystems Mm -hmm. and say, Hey, I just found this hole in your software. And I think I can use it to break into NASA that didn't exist. And in fact, when they would reach someone at the company, the typical reaction was, uh, don't poke around our systems or worse, we'll sue you if you keep poking around our systems. So hackers started releasing these tools on forums, hacking forums like BugTrack. And um, they did it for the street cred. They did it as a hobby. Um, Sometimes they did it to shame vendors like Microsoft into patching these systems. And over that same time period, as these hackers were basically getting sort of penalized or threatened for discovering these flaws... I learned that U.S. government agencies saw immense espionage value in them. If they wanted to break into the uh, you know, computers at the Russian embassy in Kiev, the best, most reliable way to do that was to use a zero-day exploit to get mm-hmm. in and then drop a payload or plant back doors to stay a while and make sure that you maintained that access. And so they would start going on these hacker forums and say, Hey, could you develop something you know special for me? Um, you know, so at the same time, these hackers are kind of getting beaten over the heads by the tech companies, these defense contractors on behalf of U.S. government agencies were offering them something like $150,000 for a reliable way to get into Microsoft Windows software. And so the market took off in the United States, U.S. government agencies started paying defense contractors and brokers and hackers directly for these zero days. And we had this unquenched thirst for as much intelligence as we could possibly get our hands on and zero day exploits and digital exploitation programs were turning over some of the best intelligence we could get. Um, But a big game changer was uh, what we did in Iran. Stuxnet. Yeah. Stuxnet.
1: There's a report out about a new computer virus that may be aimed at destroying a bricks and mortar facility. The virus is called Stuxnet, and according to the Financial Times, it may be aimed at Iran's controversial nuclear facility.
0: And what we did was with Israel, we broke into an Iranian nuclear facility, Natanz, uh, sometime around 2007. And... We used a series of zero-day exploits to get from their Microsoft Windows systems into the industrial systems that spin or monitor the speed at which these rotors spin their uranium centrifuges and enrich their uranium. And by the time that attack was discovered, we had destroyed something like a thousand of Iran centrifuges and, and sent their nuclear ambitions back a few years. Mm. But- The problem was that that attack got out uh it got out in 2010 it was discovered on um, networks all over asia It, it got into chevron and um eventually some security researchers and experts tied it back to this joint operation by the united states and israel on iran but it opened up the world's eyes to the power of a zero-day de- exploit, not just for digital espionage and surveillance, but for destruction. Mm. You know, suddenly we set a new bar where it was okay to break into another country's nuclear facility and take out their centrifuges, so long as you did so with code. And so since then, every other country on Earth, with the exception of Antarctica and maybe another handful of other governments, um, have invested in zero-day exploits and hacking tools. And an entire market has cropped up to meet that demand for these click-and-shoot spy tools, and in some cases, the tools that could be used to take out another country's grid.
1: I was really struck how you describe the ways potential adversaries adversaries were using these tools in um. Russia, North Korea, Iran, China—in particular, the four big ones—but that they all seem to be using them for markedly different things,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: in different ways for different purposes. And mm-hmm. I'm wondering, if we're looking at the way these digital tools are being used by by maybe just those countries too. So, how were they? What were they each trying to do with these? And how are they doing them differently?
0: Well you know, let's just start with Iran because they were the target of Stuxnet. And I think one of my big takeaways over the last decade is that in cyber, the enemy is a very good teacher. Mm -hmm. Um, We watched Iran a couple years, just two years after Stuxnet, wipe out the data at Saudi Aramco, the world's largest oil company, and replace it with an image of a burning American flag. You know, they just saw what the U.S. had done to its centrifuges, and no, they could not pull off a Stuxnet style attack, but they learned that they could use rudimentary wiping code to exact similar damage in, in a lot of cases. And that was a stunner for us. That was a real shocker for US government officials who said, wait a minute, we, we thought, we knew that eventually they might catch up, but we underestimated the damage they could do with really basic code. Um, and so for years we saw Iran, you know, kind of exact as much destruction as they could with these lower level tools. You know, it wasn't just the attack on Aramco. They wiped out data at Sand's Casino because Sheldon Adelson um, you know, insinuated that we should go ahead and bomb Tehran. A cascading attack, servers shut down, screens go blank, a rush to unplug computers. This attack hit the world's largest casino operation, including the Venetian Hotel in Las Vegas 10 months ago. And this also may have been the work of a rogue nation. They were knocking online banking offline with denial of service attacks, which were really low level attacks. But they were doing it in a really powerful way and it clearly invested a lot. Um, In the tools they used in those attacks. So for a long period there, I was just covering uh, these attacks as one bank after another in the US just went offline, because they were being bombarded by traffic from Iran. Um, So their intent was really destruction. China was a different case, you know, China, um, for a long time, it was intellectual property, and they were able to do that with these really kind of misspelled spearfishing emails.
1: And just to build up their own domestic industrial capacity, right? I mean, really, that's what that was at the time.
0: Yes. I mean, they, 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 didn't, they didn't want to be the world's manufacturing hub forever. They wanted to be innovators. And what easier way to catch up on innovation than to steal the intellectual property from some of the biggest innovators in the world?
1: You have that amazing line that they have the design of the F-35, Google source code, uh, the Coca Cola formula and Benjamin Moore paint formula. I mean, <laughs> so they have everything, right? Like, yeah,
0: I just the the ben, Benjamin Moore paint formula. I don't know why I mention it all the time. It just stuck with me <laughs> because it just gets to like, we'll take anything, you know, we'll take anything. Um, so yeah, but China and the, but when we did see China use zero day exploits, it was very telling how they were using them. They were using them on the Uyghurs, you know. It, 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 we have seen them use these tools for the most part for surveillance of those mm. they see as their biggest threats, which are their own people. Um, the five poisons, they call them, you know, t- Tibetan and Ty- Taiwanese activists, yeah. uh, the Uyghurs. Um, and I'm blinking on the other, other, <laughs> too. Yeah. but um, Russia, we've seen them use these tools for destruction Right. And ca-
1: causing chaos, right? And,
0: just- and causing chaos. Exactly. Um, we saw them turn the lights off in Ukraine a couple times. Mm. We've seen them break into U.S. power plants. The Department of Homeland mm. Security published this screenshot a few years ago, literally showing Russian hackers with their fingers on the switches at our, at our power plant. They did also break into one of or possibly two of our nuclear plants.
1: Yeah. I mean, that nuclear line is the most scary sentence in the book, I think.
0: Yeah. um, That was, that was the scariest thing. I was driving through the mountains, you know, headed for my 4th of July weekend vacation. I just told my husband to basically like, let me out there on the side of the road while someone basically relayed to me that they'd gotten into Wolf Creek nuclear plant. Um, And, uh, and who have we not covered? I mean, North Korea. A devastating hack, crippling one of the world's most powerful entertainment studios. Sony Pictures Entertainment tells CNN it's still investigating what it calls a very sophisticated cyber attack. I love. I love that
1: they did Sony and then decided just to make money by hacking Bitcoin. Yeah, <laughs> so. they were like,
0: "Well, that wasn't worth it. We're just yeah. gonna, we're just gonna use this to hack cryptocurrency exchanges, so we can make, get back some to our money. nuclear weapons." Yeah. yeah.
1: So, like, what's amazing, right? Is all these different countries are using these for clearly damaging use cases against the United States, which is kind of the core thesis of your book here, which is for whatever gain the U.S. government might get from using these vulnerabilities, the blowback is is both un, unknowable and uncontrollable and uncontainable. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, I guess I'm wondering, did people actually make a decision that that was worth it? Or did it just kind of happen? Like one part of government thought this was a good idea because it furthered their intelligence gathering and nobody was really thinking about the the whole picture and the potential for collateral damage.
0: I think we worried about it. I mean, it's in there about sort of uh, Barack Obama's fears about what would happen with Stuxnet if it got Mm. out, you know, the bar that they were setting. Um, I just think that there were no good options at that time for slowing down Iran's nuclear plans. So I think, yes, we worried about it, but we made this decision that it was worth it. And I, I don't even know if that decision was wrong um, for, the, for the time because, you know, arguably that code saved lives and kept Israeli jets on the ground mm. um, and kept us out of World War III. But, uh, you know, there has been a big trade-off and that trade-off has been what we're witnessing right now. Mm all of these countries are coming for us in different ways. And you know the, the governments we didn't even touch on in sort of going through each, each country's motivation for acquiring these tools are the sort of other others. I grouped them as, which is the UAE, Saudi Arabia, and even Mexico, which have turned these tools on their own people on journalists, on human rights, lawyers and activists on Jamal Khashoggi. Yeah. Um, and It's it's so far out of our control. You know, their their appetite for keeping close tabs on any form of dissent in those countries so they can avoid another Arab Spring is so strong, you know, they they started spending more energy hacking people like Ahmed Mansour, who wanted to expand the right to vote Mm. than they did tracking terrorists. Mm -hmm. Um and that is a really complicated case study because these are our allies.
1: The other big player that emerges or the set of actors that emerge in your book are the, the way the tech companies grew and transformed over that eight-year period, the U.S. tech companies. Mm-hmm. And I was really struck by that moment in the um, Aurora hack
0: Google shocked the tech community this past week by not only announcing that they were considering pulling out of China, but the reason why was targeted attacks against them from within China. Let's start with what happened. What what did Google know and when did they know it?
1: Google this week said that in mid-December it noticed that there had been a network intrusion. Google, it seems to me, almost emerges as a nation-state-like entity in that Mm -hmm. they discover the problem. They don't go to the u s government to solve it. They issue mm. the declaration against the chinese government um They kind of blame the American government for leaving the space open mm-hmm. and vulnerable mm-hmm. and I mean, I wonder if that's almost a that represents a bit of a turning point of how these companies mm-hmm. started to see themselves as state like almost in the in the international system
0: yes um Yes. And you know, it's interesting. I mean, I, I sent my original manuscript. I don't think I've told anyone this um, to one of my former editors at the New York times to read. And his feedback was you've made Google out to be too big of a saint, you know, like you have to look at what they've been doing the last couple of years and the fact that they're re-entering China and, and that kind of thing. But it was hard not to have empathy for them. Because what happened when they were hacked by China was this was the first time a, a company uh, you know, realized that they were hacked by China. And it was the first time a company came out and said it, mm. so many companies had been hacked by China, but everyone had tried to sweep it under the rug. And not only did Google come out and say, we were just hacked by China and this is what they did they actually invested the resources necessary to keep them out. Just like circling back to something we were talking about earlier. I mean, coming in this as an outsider, I also like in college, I, I don't know how I landed on this topic, but I ended up majoring basically in the Kurds and like (laughs) us foreign policy towards Kurds and Turkey and Iraq and the just, just differences there. And, Um, So I just come at this from a totally different perspective. And I think all of this has so many geopolitical implications and implications for surveillance and minorities that people weren't aware of when they were designing this code. No one at Google was thinking, I have to make this secure because this is going to keep China from torturing someone in Tibet or, you know, a Uyghur minority. But suddenly Mm -hmm. that attack woke them up to the fact that if they were really going to not be evil and they were going to have to start investing these resources and they did. And that movement drew in you know, Microsoft and Apple mm-hmm. and Facebook eventually that all started their own bug bounty programs and, um, you know, started really locking up their systems from nation states, including... Including the U.S. You know, in some cases our own. Right. And I mean, it's interesting your editor or that person you sent it to said that because
1: that was partly my reaction as well. And I mean, I spent a lot of time working on platforms now and how they should be regulated and all the harms that we know exist inside that system, um, the platform system. Um, but I, I kept wondering if if that narrative that's emerged in the zeitgeist about platforms as these harmful actors missed this whole story that you tell. <laughs> mm-hmm. <Yeah. laughs> Actually, in some ways, they were the ones picking up the pieces for the state that was just dropping the ball left, right, and center here and causing these real vulnerabilities that... The public didn't see or know about.
0: Yeah. The privacy incursions are very real. The disinformation is very real. But the security teams, when you meet the people on these security teams at Facebook and Google, these are people who would never in a million years join Facebook as a user because of the privacy (laughs) issues. But they feel so strongly about the fact that they need to secure people's data from nation states, including our own, and they're super paranoid um, people, that they are just not who you would expect when you read the headlines these days about Facebook and Google.
1: And the one of the ways that I guess that tension is really flaring up now, again, is around encryption, and which is obviously a very old debate. And I mean, you have that amazing story of Tim Cook kind of confronting Obama and saying, look, we're we're going this route. We're gonna
0: mm-hmm.
1: we are gonna end-to-end encrypt more and more things. Yeah. And you see Facebook now saying all messaging across all platforms on Facebook are, are gonna be end-to-end encrypted. And I, mm-hmm. I wonder how you think about that debate and as it's gonna play out.
0: I think the argument that Tim Cook made at the time, the one that I think really landed with me and a lot of people in the intelligence community is, if we open up a back door for you, which other governments should we not open up a back door uh, for? Because we are a global company now. They have more business outside the United States than they do inside the United States now. Mm -hmm. So if they open up a door, first of all, how how is the FBI planning on keeping that safe when, and conveniently this all happened at the same time, Um, The Office of Personnel Management, which handles all the personal data and records for everyone applying for a security clearance, was hacked by China and everything was stolen, including their fingerprints. Mm -hmm. So Tim Cook said, you know, how are you planning on securing (laughs) this magical backdoor key from China, from our adversaries when you clearly can't lock up your own data? Um, And two, this is just going to invite every other country on the planet to demand that we give them a back door. So where does this end? And I think those yeah. arguments alone uh you know are are sort of case closed. But, you know, we did this great series of stories in the New York Times this year about the problem of tracking, you know, child traffickers and and pornographers and Encryption has made it a lot harder for law enforcement um, mm. to find those people. And those people have migrated a lot of their systems to Tor and encryption. So I do empathize with the problem. Um, and it's just really tricky. I think it's just one of those things like so much of this book, there's no silver bullet. These are really mm. hard questions. And, you know, even when I find myself, drifting towards one answer, something will pop up and you realize, huh, I was way too certain about how I felt about that. You know, there's no easy answers here, which is partly why I wanted to write a really accessible book, because I actually Mm -hmm. think at this point, it'd be really helpful to open up these conversations to people who think about things like bioterrorism. You know, how have we handled these problems in other sciences and other industries, Uh, because for too long, we've sort of just left these conversations to this really insular information security community and to classified government corridors, and it's not working. You know, this is not working. Um, So I think it's time to be very creative (laughs) about how we handle these issues.
1: You make it so clear all the way through how exclusionary that discourse is too. And when you have a conversation framed in the language of national intelligence it creates a very limited set of considerations Mm -hmm. and probably certain risks are much more willing to be taken and maybe with the encryption debate governments should be learning a bit from the broader implications of these strategic decisions and Something might be good in the short term and for very particular targeted reasons, but Mm -hmm. those broader consequences are are massive, particularly for people in less democratic societies.
0: Yes. And, you know, the visuals that will really stick with me from reporting out this book are Ahmed Mansour still stuck in solitary confinement, the guy we call the million dollar dissident in the United Arab Emirates who has been hacked and spied on with every new spyware that hits the market. Um, you know, that will stick with me. Um, the other one is, you know, this story that this former NSA hacker told me about being recruited outside the agency by a Beltway contractor um, with promises to double quadruple his salary being sent to Abu Dhabi, uh, told he was going to do one thing, but then he ended up being hired to do another, and of course he wasn't allowed to tell anyone what he was actually doing. And at first, that thing was you're going to hack, you know, foreign networks and terrorists on behalf of the United Arab Emirates. Um, but very quickly, it became, hey, you know, we we heard reports that Qatar is hacking the Muslim Brotherhood. Can you hack them? But Qatar is also a U.S. ally, and suddenly an right. NSA hacker sitting there. Hacking another US ally. And then they invited Michelle Obama, who was the first lady at the time, to Qatar. And suddenly he's capturing Michelle Obama's emails and security details in this dragnet. And so that visual sticks with me, which is where is the oversight on this? Where are the rules? And I don't think it's acceptable that a former NSA hacker whose training comes from taxpayer dollars is you know, sitting there reading the first lady's emails. I think most of us could agree that's not acceptable. Um, I don't think it's acceptable that we're selling. We, you know, the, the U S hackers, but also hackers all over the world are selling these tools to governments that over and over again, we know will abuse them. So where does this all end? <laughs> I
1: mean, the title of your book is
0: that it it doesn't end well. (laughs) Um, This is how
1: the world ends. But, I I mean, I think I was originally most concerned about the nuclear war issue (laughs) or -hmm. nuclear meltdown or whatever might be done by a hack. But it seems to me, in the way you articulate it there, that the bigger problem might just be this death by a thousand cuts that... Mm these tools just cause so much disruption to our institutions and to our political systems and to human rights norms. And I mean, maybe that's how the world ends is through a thousand cuts rather than a reactor meltdown.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not so straightforward, you know, the title, I think people thought they were going to be reading this book about mushroom clouds. And yes, we are getting dangerously closer to that sort of cyber induced kinetic boom moment. Um, we keep having these close calls, you know, mm. and yes, we are getting closer to it and we're fortunate that it hasn't happened over the last 10 years. And there's legitimate questions to be asked about why it didn't happen. I do think it it's a distraction. The sort of talk of a cyber Pearl Harbor is a distraction from where we already are, which is our elections have been hacked. Our, you know, psyches every day with these conspiracy theories and disinformation campaigns, our power plants, our nuclear plants, our hospitals. I mean, the ransomware attacks on our hospitals are just getting worse and worse. And I just heard a healthcare organization paid $10 million in ransom and his, their insurance encouraged them to pay that price because that's still cheaper than the price it would cost to remediate and build back up from scratch. And so where is ransomware going? Because we're just digitizing our lives. At what point is it going to be your self-driving car or (laughs) your Mm. insulin pump or your pacemaker? You know, there's no reason to go there yet because there's still so much money to be made with these corporate ransomware attacks, but we're just continuing to connect everything without thinking about that possibility And that's Mm -hmm. a very real possibility. That's not just stoking fear for fear's sake. That's a possibility.
1: Uh, Yeah. And I mean, just directionally where we're heading, it feels. Um, So, I mean, look, I think that's why it's so just unbelievably important and valuable that you've written this book in the way you have that we start having this debate because I just don't, Think we have been. So thank you yes. for doing it.
0: Thank you. Really.
1: And thanks for talking to us about it. I really, really appreciate it.
0: Thank you. And just because I hate ending on a everything is terrible note, um, you know, you, I wrote this book. I was running to get it to press before the election because we were all worried about the 2020 election here in the US and what would happen yeah. in terms of foreign interference. And Lo and behold, my book goes to the printer and then we discover the solar winds attack. And now we're discovering another Chinese attack on our software supply chain. And those are terrible. It's going to take a while to unwind these things, but... The good news is we've hit rock bottom on that part. <laughs> you know, we have no choice but to ask ourselves the hard questions about what is in our network and who's securing it and where is where is this code being built and maintained and tested and are they investing enough in security and should there be liabilities for Solarwinds for the password to their software update mechanism being Solarwinds123 and should we create incentives for companies like tax credits that do subject themselves to serious penetration testing. These are not, these are not things we have been talking about. And suddenly we really have to talk about them. We have no choice, um, build back better as, as Biden calls it, you know, is being applied <laughs> to the cyber domain thinking as well. So mm. those are good. Those are good things. They're not enough, but they're, we're headed in a better direction because, you know, we know it has to be more than, should we have a data breach notification law? Um, it has to be more than that. So, And it needs to be a public debate too. I mean, as mm-hmm. you make
1: very clear, there's some real trade-offs involved with yeah. how we deal in this space. And that needs public engagement and and buy-in for those trade-offs. So, yes, yes. But I hope this book helps to do that. So thank, thank you. you. Thank
0: you. Thank yeah. you.
1: Thank you so much. That was really fun.
0: Yeah, I feel <laughs> like I was... Um, talking to my therapist, it was so helpful for me to <laughs> get this out. So I appreciate it.
1: That was my conversation with Nicole Pearl Roth. As always, you can reach me at taylor at bigtechpodcast.com. Big Tech is presented by the Center for International Governance Innovation and produced by Antica Productions. Please consider subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We release new episodes on Thursdays every other week.